Hi, this is Ian Wolfe, producer, host and writer for Diffusion Science Radio. I need your support. You can support Diffusion by downloading a free Audible audiobook from audibletrial.com science. Just for getting you to try them out, Audible will pay me a small reward. Or you could click on an Amazon link on diffusionradio.com and Amazon will kick a few percent of what you pay them my way. Please, make a donation directly with the PayPal button on www.diffusionradio.com. Diffusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer on the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro-seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. (laughs) (laughs) Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. And I've still got the flu. On this edition... Mark Baudry talks about Canada in space. But first up, here's the news. Google is listening. Google aren't just spying on your browser history or what you type. Google have been caught out sneakily inserting code to listen through the microphones of people who deliberately chose to browse free of Google spying. Chromium is a web browser based on the open source parts of Google's Chrome browser and is chosen by people who don't trust Google's spying activities. As open source software, all of its code and libraries are meant to have been scrutinised by many people. However, it turns out they missed some code that Google uses to get the browser to load new code in the form of what's called a binary blob every time the browser starts. A binary blob is code that's already compiled into a binary so that it can't be easily read to find out what it's doing. It's proprietary. Protected. It's a black box. This new code switches on your computer's microphone and starts streaming the audio to Google servers around the world. Naturally, the Google Chrome browser, which does not have open source, just has the code permanently built into the browser. The Opera browser is also based on Chromium code, so it also listens in on your microphones. Opera is the default internet software for Sony and several other brands of smart TV. When confronted with the evidence that they are listening to people without their consent, Google didn't apologise or demur. They explained they have to. They have to listen to everyone around the world in case they utter the magic words, OK Google, so that the browsers can take voice commands. This ignores the fact that Chromium users didn't ask for voice commands and explicitly didn't consent to having their microphone switched on. However, Google also promised that although Chromium still sneakily downloads the surveillance program automatically without your consent, it now won't actually use it to listen to you unless you now opt in. Trust them. If you're on Chrome or Chromium, you can enter in the address bar at the top, chrome colon two forward slashes voice search and then hit enter to see the microphone and audio capture settings on your browser. I use Chromium on Ubuntu Linux to look at flash sites because Adobe don't support flash on Firefox for Linux 
and I specifically chose the open source community maintained Chromium over Google's proprietary Chrome because I don't trust Google's approach to privacy. My voice search hot word settings show my microphone is enabled and audio capture is allowed by default, even though hot word searching is off by default. Audio capture is enabled? That doesn't sound like I need to opt in. Even if you still trust Google and their national security agency allies that they would never abuse the ability to remotely switch on your microphone and spy on you, you can still be listened to by people exploiting a bug in the JavaScript voice recognition application programming interface. The idea is to allow people to create websites that are voice controlled by just using JavaScript. Basically, developers can write software that ask your permission to use the microphone and the tab flashes red to tell you that you're being listened to and recorded. After you're finished with their voice recognizing website, the tab stops flashing a red dot and then recording should stop and nobody should have permission to listen to you anymore. However, the JavaScript bug allows a malicious person to continue recording you with the audio sent to Google servers where it's converted to text and then sent on to the criminal without any sign to you that this is happening. The programmer who found this bug sent the information to Google, who worked out how to fix it within two weeks and entered the programmer for a chance to win a cash reward for helping them improve their security. Just one problem. After many months, Google haven't implemented the fix in Chrome or Chromium because they're waiting on a committee to decide on the appropriate action. Chrome and Chromium are still vulnerable to this attack. Part of the problem is that when you grant a site that uses HTTP Secure Protocol, HTTPS, permission to use your microphone for voice recognition, Chrome and Chromium will remember your choice and allow the site to start listening again in the future without bothering to ask for permission again. This can be done in a pop under window. As it sounds, it pops under other windows instead of popping up on top the reverse of those annoying pop-up ads. This can be done in a window that you never saw, never interacted with, and probably didn't even know was there. All your words are converted to text, automatically transcribed by Google. As I was researching this story, Google popped up a message asking me to review my privacy settings. Coincidence? Or were they using my search history for more than advertising? Google privacy settings include your audio and microphone settings. Keep an eye open to see if you start seeing ads based on your recent conversations near the computer. You're listening to Ian Wolf on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Last month's Orbit Oz Space Entrepreneur Meetup Talk was given by Mark Baudry. Mark Baudry is Managing Director of the Hexi Geo Group, a Sydney-based geospatial services brokerage firm. Before recently locating to Sydney, he worked for one of Canada's main space contractors, McDonald Detweiler & Associates, MDA. They developed Canada's space robotics capacity and built and operate Canada's Earth Observation SAR satellites. 
Canada has found its place in space, providing space robotics capabilities to the Space Shuttle and International Space Station programs. Mark's talk asks the question, could Australia learn from Canada's success to find its own niche in space? I began by asking Mark, how successful are Canada's space industries? Since the creation of the space agency in the late 80s, things have gone a lot faster than they have in the past. The, the, the real program started in the 60s with the launch of a first satellite, which was just to monitor the ionosphere. And then uh, in the 80s, we had their first Canadian um, astronauts that really launched everything. It drove a lot of kids into science as well because they, they saw that the, even Canadians could, could go into space. In the, in the 60s, there was a recommendation made uh, to create a space agency to kind of oversee all the space program. It did end up uh, being created in, the, in 1989. It took almost five, 25 years. And basically the space agency is a hub for the space program in Canada where they basically fund uh, projects through the private se- sector, matching funds or uh, what have you. It's really, really launched when they decided to, they need, needed a satellite to um, monitor the Arctic. Um, they were looking at uh, optical, obviously, was the easiest solution early on, uh, but it had uh, two or three big problems for Canada. Uh, monitoring the Arctic in the winter is uh, uh, in darkness 24 hours a day. Optical was not an option. Uh, there was a lot of the clouds as well, which is why they went to radar, which is was the pretty much the only solution. What happened from there is basically uh, radar technology that was used to monitor the Arctic spun off a bunch of other uh, uses that they didn't plan for originally and that's where a lot of private sector got involved the last estimate um, they talk about uh, about 3.3 billion dollars a year in revenue generated from space either companies building components for space program or even remote sensing of using space platforms um, which employs about 8,000 people in Canada right now and so there's about 200 private companies involved uh, there's about uh, I think it's 50 universities that have a some space component to a program, and there's 25 government agencies that are involved as well. So uh, that's why I think the space agency needed to be created to be able to oversee all this activity and, and try to create more. And it brings money in not just for the companies involved, but also for the Canadian government. Yes, well, taxes. Uh, obviously, that's that's always a big uh, a big thing. And I mean, it, it's hard. They they say the number is three point three billion. I've seen higher numbers as well. So it's really really hard to determine exactly uh, what the number is. But already at that, when we compare it to the budget from the space agency, which is about three hundred thirty million, we're talking about a ten to one return on investment, which is uh, phenomenal. And there's been interesting projects like the Canada Arm. Yeah, so basically, uh, obviously Canada being a smaller country, uh, we, we didn't really have a... We couldn't match the budget that NASA had, for example, where they, they could actually spend money on building a spacecraft to go into space. So we kind of piggybacked on it. There was a um, tender that went out that they needed some robotics to to work on the shuttle. And so Canada basically jumped on, on that, this idea and developed the Canada Arm, which was the first one was mounted on the, the space shuttle, which was used to launch satellites or equipment or whatever in and out of the cargo of the, the space shuttle. And then Canada Arm 2 was developed to be on the space, on the ISS, and basically help build the ISS because of its mobility. Then Dexter was attached to Canada Arm 2. Uh, they had the, the base module that allows for Canada Arm 2 it's like a rail that goes the length of the space station to be able to, to work on different parts of it. 
that was developed as well by the Canadian program. Can I just stop you for a second? So Dexter, was that to allow the arm to move around the space station? No, the Dexter is, in, is like the hand of the, the, the arm, basically. Uh, Dexter is the very sophisticated robot, and now they're finding new uses for it. They're looking at, you know, the Canadians are looking to create a space station in space, which was to when you consider there's about 2,500 satellites that are roaming around lost in space that have no fuel anymore. Uh, there's a huge market for trying to catch them and give them another life. So uh, they, they basically built a toolbox for Dexter that they sent with the last uh, shuttle flight. And they actually tested the, on a derelict satellite, and it actually worked pretty well. Because you have to consider that 99.9% .9 of satellites are not made to be reserviced. The only two are the Hubble telescope and this, the ISS. So to be able to service something that's not supposed to be serviced in outer space is challenging. So uh, the robotics really helped, obviously. They're going to need, if they want to do exploration for Mars or whatever they, they want to do in the future, they will need infrastructure like this in outer space to refuel spacecrafts on the go. They, if they have enough fuel to go up into space and refuel while they're up there and to come back, uh, that makes it a lot easier and cost efficient. So, Space debris is a problem now and it's just only going to get worse. Yeah. Canada is uh, part of that, uh, The uh, I think it's the IADC, uh, the space debris, uh, so basically a consortium of uh, 13 uh, space agencies. So Canada's part of that, uh, the Japanese, Indian, Chinese, Russians, NASA obviously is involved. So they, they, they want to basically coordinate efforts to so that there's not too much overlap on what, what is being developed and try to, first of all, they want to track them. Um, I know Australia has invested on a project to uh, basically zap them from, from the ground. And I think the, uh, the laser is based in, uh, out in Canberra where they can basically uh, redirect debris from, from the ground with, with lasers. That, that's, so I think they invested, um, I don't know how much it was, but it was a pretty significant investment from the Australian government. Do you know if it's CSIRO or was it defense? It was, a, it, it was a, the government that funded it. It was built by a company in the U.S., but it sits in Canberra right now. Um, last week I was there and I was told that it was, it's on the mountain where the observatory is. So, um, so that's, and, and, but funny enough, this, this program was not done with, within the, the, the international uh, delegation. So it, it, they're not part of that 13 countries, which I, by definition, if they did that, they should have been. But uh, Canada launched, um, and two years ago, they launched a satellite to basically track debris and asteroids. But uh, it's basically in outer space, instead of looking down at, to Earth, it's actually looking into outer space to track the debris. Uh, and there's going to be a lot more done on that front to try to track them. And then they're going to have to look at diverting the debris or catching it, which is where Canada Arm might actually be come in handy because they were talking about having a garbage bin for space, basically, having using the robotics to catch big debris and get it out of the way, which is probably the next step, the, what they're going to have to do. Sorry, I'm just still stuck on the <laughs> that the, the satellite destroyer in, in Canberra. So is that actually to destroy them or just to look to, for them? It's it's a laser. It's a laser. Uh, tr um, it's a range to, to try to, to locate them. And they apparently can divert them a little bit. And, and you know, in the, a little bit in space could be a few kilometers, which makes a huge difference to divert it from, from satellites, obviously. And with, with all the CUBE satellites being launched, it's going to be even more important to have those those capabilities because there's going to be, you know, uh, when you look at a small company like Planet Labs, they already launched 73 satellites in less than a year. 
there's already a few thousand. I think there's what 1,100 in operation right now. If you talk about the GPS, it's communication and uh, Earth observation satellites. So it's going to be if they launch a few hundreds at a at a time. I mean, it's going to be really busy up there. So they they really need to get rid of the debris somehow. Um, so catching it, destroying it. I mean, destroying it is probably not the option because that's what started it all. Uh, but uh, yeah. So how can a laser nudge a satellite that doesn't have fuel? It's it's just a. Um, I I just I didn't read much about it, but uh, from what I was told, it's just basically giving a, giving it a little a little spur just to divert it a little bit from uh, from from where from its orbit. I I haven't looked into if it works. I haven't looked. I know they they built it. Um, that's all I pretty much know. I will look this up. Yeah, it's yeah. very interesting. With Dexter and the Canada Arm, you also mentioned about a spin-off called NeuroArm. Yeah, so uh, McDonald Detweiler, MDA, which was the company that built all the capability, the robotic capabilities for the space agency, spun off some of the technology for medical purposes. So NeuroArm was one of them, which is a, basically a robot built into. It's made of non-metallic parts uh, because it can operate on the brain in uh, MRI environment. So while a patient is in the MRI machine, they can actually operate and remove a tumor. And it's all robotics. It's all extra, ultra precise. Um, and they also developed uh, other spinoffs of robots for medical purposes, for breast cancer, removing tissue, and um, for uh, pediatry, uh, uh, pediatric uh, surgery for kids, for small babies. So there's a lot of spinoffs like this that um, that Canada's benefiting on other levels um just like nasa you know over the, over the years they there's you know you can find a long list of spin-offs uh, from the material that they use to fire retardant on metallic structures for you know uh, skyscrapers was developed in space the de-icer on planes which is not an issue in australia but it is in canada was basically spray a plane with de-icer before it goes up when it's minus 40 degrees outside it was developed for a space program as well so there's a lot of things that were uh anti uh, like anti-scratch uh, lenses that we all wear now were developed for for space programs as well so there if if I mean, it's been said over and over again that if NASA was to benefit from all the patents it generated, they would have a self-sustained program that would probably have 10 or 20 times more budget than it has now. So uh, unfortunately, all the patents go to the Treasury in the U.S., so uh, it's really hard to put a number on what the benefits have been. But for sure, Canada has seen a benefit for sure of the, the, the robotics that they've developed, the expertise they've developed on that front. And you mentioned, is it NeoSat, or is it, if I've written it wrong, is it NeoSat? Yeah, NeoSat is the one for the, uh, the the space debris, the tracking the space debris. So it was developed by uh, Microsystems, uh, which is a Toronto-based company. So it was another contractor that built that satellite for the space agency. That was Mark Baldry, Managing Director of the Hexi-Geo Group, talking about the lessons from Canada's successful space industries that Australia can learn. You can hear part two of Mark's interview next week. And finally, FameLab. FameLab is a competition for public communication of science by early career researchers run every year by the British Council. The British Council is an international organisation promoting education in the arts and sciences. The judges for the New South Wales State Heat of the Competition were Helen O'Neill, the Country Director of the British Council Australia, Dr Angela Crean from the University of New South Wales School of Biological, Earth and Environmental Sciences where she studies non-genetic inheritance, parental effects, sperm quality and plasticity. 
and Rose Hiscock, Director of the Museum of Applied Arts and Sciences. They judged on the values of good science, persuasive communication and style. The host of the night was the surfing scientist and star of ABC TV's catalyst, Ruben Meerman. So our next speaker is from the University of Sydney. Dr Mark Westman is going to speak to us about, well, does the FIV vaccine stop cats from contracting FIV? Please make him very welcome. Mark Westman. Geraldine, you have AIDS. My words are followed by silence. Geraldine, there is no cure for AIDS or silence. Geraldine, we're going to have to test your brother as well since you guys have been sleeping together. This is getting a little bit weird. Except Geraldine's a cat and I'm a veterinarian and tonight I'm talking about cat AIDS. <laughs> but let me start with human AIDS. 35 million people worldwide are currently living with AIDS and last year one and a half million people died from AIDS. The World Health Organization rates AIDS as one of the three most important diseases along with malaria and tuberculosis. Cat AIDS, spread through cat fights, rather than unsafe sex or intravenous drug use, is very common. There are around 300,000 cats in Australia alone living with AIDS. And although uh, HIV and FIV are different viruses, and cats cannot infect people or vice versa, the viruses that cause AIDS in cats and people belong to the same genus, which means they are very similar in structure. Researchers have been trying for over 20 years to develop a vaccine against human AIDS. One of the most recent attempts actually resulted in an increased incidence of AIDS in people tested. What would be ideal is if there was a convenient sample of animals that we could use as a model for human AIDS. Ideally, an animal that was readily accessible, easy to handle, soft and pleasant to touch. <laughs> Of course, cats are the perfect model for us to study human AIDS. And in 2002, veterinary researchers released a commercial vaccine against cat AIDS. When the vaccine was released, laboratory-based trials found the vaccine had an efficacy of anywhere between 0% and 100%. But, and this is the clincher, no one knows what the efficacy of the vaccine is in the real world, in real cats. And for, for the first time ever, my research will address this question. I've recruited 400 cats from around Australia and developed a new technique to easily diagnose cat AIDS in vaccinated animals, something that was previously impossible to do. Using this new diagnostic technique, the hypothesis for my study is very simple. If the cat AIDS vaccine is working, I won't find AIDS in vaccinated cats. If the vaccine is not working, I will find a similar frequency of cat AIDS in vaccinated and unvaccinated animals. If my research demonstrates that the cat AIDS vaccine is able to protect cats like Geraldine, then I will have shown that it is possible to develop a vaccine against an AIDS-causing virus. That will mean that we're a whole lot closer to developing an HIV vaccine. And wouldn't that be a great day for science and humanity? Thank you. That would be a great day. Um, can you take us through the steps of developing a vaccine? Yes, uh, of course. So I can't claim to be involved in the uh, vaccine development. 
Um, but the exciting news is that the researchers who developed the vaccine in America have already started work on developing a second phase vaccine which will cross over hopefully uh, for HIV as well. Uh, so they're doing lots of research there and I'm hoping to go over there next year actually and do some work with them and collaborate. So my, my research really is more about being diagnostics and then looking at uh, field trials for the vaccine which is amazingly never been done anywhere in the world. So we'll be the first ones to have some results. And you're talking about being in the process of doing the research. Where, where are you up to in the, in the project? How, how far through are you? So I've recruited 380 yeah. out of the 400 cats and I've done <laughs> most of that testing. So I, I have some preliminary results. And the results are, look like a lot of science. It's not black and white. There looks mm -hmm. to be some protection. It's not going to be 100% protection, but even some level of protection is going to be exciting to, to suggest that it is possible to, to vaccinate against an AIDS-causing virus. Yeah. What, what percentage of the cat population actually does have AIDS? Just, yeah, it's just a great question. Yeah. And it depends on which cats you're talking about. Yeah. So if you took a snapshot of pet cats owned in Australia, 8% is a good figure. 8%? 8%. Yeah. Uh, if you're limited to cats that have outdoor access, a lot of owners will keep their cats 100% indoors. Yeah. If you exclude those cats because they can't get any cat bites, it's about 15%. And if you look at the feral cat population, so we think Australia's got maybe 20 million feral cats, mm. it's more like 20 or 25 percent. Mm, so it's, it, it makes Australia a, a great place to study cat AIDS because we have as much of it as anyone else in the world. Mm. Diagnostic technique, what's your particular diagnostic technique? And you don't need to spend two hours on it. <laughs> <laughs> I could, but um, so uh, the, the mainstay of diagnosing cat AIDS, and it's the same for, for HIV, is uh, antibody detection. And when you vaccinate a cat with the cat A's vaccine, it results in antibodies being produced that initially we thought would be indistinguishable from cats who are naturally infected. But we've found that if you look at particular antibodies, you can distinguish between infected and vaccinated. So it's all about discriminating which antibodies you're actually looking at. Thank you very much, Mark. Thank you. That was Mark Westman from the University of Sydney talking about the FIV vaccine and feline AIDS at FameLab, New South Wales. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to hear your voice on radio? Would you like to join us? We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. You can send your contributions, opinions, congratulations, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com and please do send me an email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolf. Checking production was Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the community radio network, including 2HHH in Hornsby, Karingai, 2NVR in Nambaka Valley, 2XX in Canberra, and 3MBR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation Science360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com and check the website for more information about this week's show. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know and to appreciate. 
When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick, everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.